Welcome to the Natural Selection. This week's theme is camouflage. Welcome back to the Natural Selection. We're here today to talk about camouflage. That's this week's theme. But before that, our introduction. Coming to you from all across the globe, we're definitely a class, maybe a family, and in no particular order, I'm Nick. I'm Nick. And I'm Naomi. Hi. Hi, guys. <laughs> How are y'all doing today? Good. Hi, I'm there. Yeah. I made a, <laughs> I made a cake. That was nice. Ooh, a cake. Yeah. What kind? Cake. Lemon drizzle. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Would be lemon yeah. drizzle. Yeah, it was. It's nice. I just drizzled it um, with lemons. So, okay. Yeah, so that's exciting. Um, otherwise, it's sunny, so I'm happy. Mm. It's cloudy here. Oh, that's sad. Well, I win. Yeah. Rarely is it sunny where you are anyway, so take it where you can. That's true. That's true. Although Netherlands not known for their weather. <laughs> <laughs> no, the sky is low. Um, it's not been well. I was I talked to someone on the phone from here the other day, and they said, this is not normal. Don't get used to this. <laughs> uh, and when they said that, it was overcast. So uh, I think they just mean it gets very gray and very dark. Maybe your lemon drizzle cake. It was like a little ritual to bring some sun out. That's true. Like a rain sun dance. Yeah. A little sun on the table, a little sun in the sky. Um, that's enough pleasantry for the day. Let's get to bent on to business. Uh, we're going to get started today with some news. You guys brought some news today? Yeah. I'm super excited. Um, hopefully we'll continue our trend of having some nice news. Though... Naomi's giving me a little bit of a grimace, so I'm wondering if maybe she brought some bad news. Mine, mine's actually pretty okay. I'm trying to, like, it could be considered bad news, but it's not. It's good news about something that's not necessarily a good species. Let's put it that way. Oh, a good species. That's a moralistic uh, judgment. Yeah. yeah. I, know, sorry. I, well, I mean, like, in an anthropomorphic, like, in a, yeah, human-centric sense. That, okay, you know, cool. maybe like, we'll take it. Yeah. What about you, Nick? Is yours happy or? Uh, yeah, I like it. Um, it depends <laughs> which team you support, I guess, bees or plants. Oh. Hmm. Naomi, which are you, before we know what the news is, which are you more of a supporter of? On which team? Hmm. I want to say bees, but they kind of need the plants. So it's like, and also we need the plants. We need the bees. Yeah. Bees have been taking a few hard hits the last few years. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm firmly in the bee team, as I was for all sports in my school. <laughs> all right. Um, which of you wants to get us started? Can we hear about these bees, please? Yeah, if you want. <laughs> so bumblebees, I'm sure you're aware of bumblebees. They're quite fun. A bumble about. Um, so, 
one thing we know about bees, as you were saying, is they rely on plants and they rely on um, pollen resources for their nutrients, right? So what these people were looking at was um, this group led by uh, Dr. Pachelidou, which I'm probably butchering, but they uh, they were looking at bees and it was always assumed that because bees were reliant on pollen, that they had to sort of be quite accepting because pollen is not a constant thing like sometimes there are lots of plants and sometimes there are less because it's dependent on weather which can be quite changeable so they thought that they would um just have to tolerate the fact that if there wasn't as much pollen as last year but um Pasha Lidu et al made observations where they found that bees may have developed ways to cope with a regular flowering um so when there's a shortage of pollen they notice that the bumblebees uh, would like climb onto the plants and start like damaging the leaves and what they notice is when they damage the leaves that this would affect uh, the plants by making them flower early sometimes by as much as 30 days so they had 30 days of extra flowers just by uh, damaging the leaves so what's even more amazing to me is the scientists tried to copy this and were like oh well, if we damage the leaves the flowers will grow but they were looking at what the bees were doing and they tried to copy it and when the scientists did it it didn't work so it appears the bees are doing something very specific um, that they sort of evolved to do to, um, yeah, to uh, make the flowers flower earlier than they should. Whoa. Wow. And um, was this on a range of species of plants or one specific plant? Sorry, I'm not sure if you said that. I think it's a general behavior. Uh, uh, the way the, the, way the um, paper talks about it, I think it's quite a general thing. They just talk about... Um, uh, floral resources and plant leaves rather than any specific species. Oh, cool. Hmm. I wonder how those bees figured that out. I don't, I can't comprehend how a bee thinks. <laughs> oh. They can't even use their hive mind because bumblebees don't live in hives, do they? Hmm. Cool. Great news for the bees, I guess, that humans can't, I don't know, steal their pollen or whatever the bees would think we were doing by trying to destroy their plants in the way that they destroy plants, but we can't do it right. But sad news for the plants. I have to, you know, I have to do a little bit of the devil's advocate just because of, you know, you're both on B team, so. Yeah. But does it, does it maybe benefit the plants in the long run because they're getting more pollination? Like, does it not just lengthen the time they have for pollination as opposed to make it earlier? I suppose, but then it forces them to expend energy when they might not have the energy resources available to flower. Who knows what goes on in the mind of a plant or a bee? Not me. Well, we know that ants think in one half and then the other, right? Memory. Ah, yes. I remember. <laughs> we learned that last week. That's in your right brain. If yes. you were in. Naomi, did you want to give us your news? Yeah, so um, my news was about shipworm. Have you guys heard of this? No. So the, the title of the article. Um, talks about researchers focus on the bacteria in the clam that sank a thousand ships. Um, so shipworm are a mollusk and they basically get This into... clam needs to be stopped. Was it just like one rogue clam? <laughs> I think it's lots of rogue clams. Oh, um, yes. So basically they yeah, they they brought down the Spanish Armada, they sent the San Francisco <laughs> Pier crumbling into the sea, and they stranded Christopher Columbus in Jamaica. Um, so basically they're able to eat wood so they would have destroyed wood and piers um, with and wooden ships and piers. 
but they do this because they have bacteria. This paper focused on uh, describing some one of the pieces of bacteria that they have that enable them to break down um, the material in the wood, which is really difficult to break down. And um, it's lig- interesting. Uh, lignocellulose. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can break it down into sugars. Um, and this may be really useful for applications because they're able to figure out how the, the enzyme works. They can like use it in applications to break down waste and enter like, products and fuels and different things. But they also may be able to have other um, molecules as well, uh, this bacteria. So it's an interesting article focusing on the bacteria. But um, as well, they found that the, the bacteria are able to get into the cell, cells of the, uh, the mollusk, which is interesting because they can also study how the mechanism of how this happens, which may be able to help us figure out more harmful bacteria and how they get into our cells. Or things like mitochondria. Mm, mm. Yeah, interesting, yep. Imagine if instead of having little symbionts in our cells that made energy for us, we could touch wood and it would melt into sugar. Mm. Mm. Do you like sugar? So what you're telling us, Naomi, is that these shells, clams, be, be, no, mollusks, yeah, shipworm, uh, because of their because of their mutualism with the bacteria, they have superpowers. Yes, effectively. Yeah. Cool. Wow, great. That Love is that. definitely definitely science. That is. <laughs> <laughs> That's great news. Good yeah, news. Yeah, I mean, they named the bacteria um, because apparently people don't care about bacteria if it doesn't have a name. Uh, they named it Terridinibacter waterbury. So. I have a surprise for you guys today. I have news. Not only that, it's good news. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to share this with the group because I thought that it would be, you know, somehow interesting. The news I brought for you today is sort of paleontology related. Um, There has been a global... hmm, There has been a global... uh, I thought I would have it that time. There's been a global collection of new radiocarbon dates uh, from researchers all around the world, from not only tree rings, which I think are the the most common thing to sort of calibrate radiocarbon dating with, where you can count the tree ring years back, and then you can also radiocarbon date the wood, and then you get, oh, this many years is this curve on the radiocarbon dating graph. But they've included all sorts of things like marine corals and ice cores, and different types of sediments and macrofossils and things from caves and all this sort of stuff. And they have extended the range of possible radiocarbon dating by 5,000 years. Uh, So now people can date back about 55,000 years using radiocarbon dating. Uh, And apparently it's a bit more accurate. So super cool um, improvement in that sort of natural history dating technology. But it might also mean that some of the dates that we have now are not right and need to be redone. That's really cool. Good news for scientists everywhere who have trouble dating. Well, <laughs> isn't that all of us? <laughs> no, not all of us. <laughs> so, the next part of our episode, which this week, we'll be talking about our main theme, camouflage. Welcome back from our short break. 
Today, we're going to talk about camouflage, that stuff that things use to hide from other things. Who wants to get us started today? Well, I found uh, information about camouflage was uh, quite difficult to find. <laughs> it's only one well hidden. <laughs> oh, we're amazing. Um, so it's sort of weird that you think camouflage. I was, I was, my, I was like, well, what's camouflage? My mind immediately went to like stick insects and that. So I'm sure you guys are familiar with stick insects. Love them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, including one which is uh, the longest insect. Uh, it's, it's uh, I think, yeah, well over the length of a standard ruler. Um, but yeah, you get some pretty, pretty big old stick insects who essentially just try and look like sticks. Um, the thing with sticks, though, is um, you'd think that sticks don't really move, right? Right. Yeah, they're, they're immobile, but they do, because, as we're all familiar with, the wind. So every now and again, stick insects, to look more like sticks, will just wobble a bit. Oh, ah, just like the wind. <laughs> hmm. Interesting. Okay. If this is a Disney film, you then would have broken into song about the wind. So what you're saying is basically do like a little wind jiggle. Like yeah, a little jiggle. Cool. Yeah, I thought that was quite fun. Because, um, yeah, you think if I was going to do an impression of a stick, I wouldn't jiggle at all. So it shows you what I know about trying to be a stick. Yeah. yeah. Wow. All these things you don't know you don't know. Yeah. Until you get schooled by some bug. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you going to mean me. Till you get schooled by some <laughs> English know-it-all. <laughs> some instant bug that looks like a stick. Uh, it's not a bug, it's an insect. Oh, right, yes, not a true bug. Not a true bug. They're in the phasmen, phasmen today. So what are they in? Oh, I can't remember, but I do have a fact about a true bug if you want. Yes, please. So have you heard of uh, Redivius Personatus? Not by name. No, no. Good. Uh, to be honest, if you had, I would have been almost, I almost pity you. Um, it's quite, it's not that obscure, but it's called the, the Masked Hunter Bug. It's a pretty cool name. Um, now, the bug itself is not that interesting when it's a fully grown adult, but the reason that I found interesting was their nymphs do an interesting way to camouflage themselves, which is... They cover themselves in either dust or dirt or sand to blend in when they're hunting. Cool. So they don't actually have an inbuilt um, sort of camouflage like the stick insect does. They're sort of a bit sticky, but in a different way. Oh. And they, um, yeah, so I saw a picture one where it was absolutely covered in sand. So obviously anything looking at it, um, it would just assume it was the the floor. But it's actually a, a masked hunter bug nymph. Wow, cool. And that is a bug. That is a bug. Um, the only other information of note I found about it is if you do find an adult one, apparently you pick them up, their proboscis can stab you and it does hurt. Cool. Good to so, know. Yeah, don't do that. Safety warning, thank you. It's all right. How do you, once they're not nymphs, they don't do where they're sand anymore? No, I don't believe so. Hmm. If they, yeah. know what it was. Well, you'd have to be a bug person. You would have to be a bug person. 
Um, and that, yeah, I mean, you can always ask them. They're probably happy to talk to a human. So the, re- the rest of us are just trial by fire. Yeah. <laughs> just say it with confidence, because only bug people will be able to correct you, and they're hardly ever around. True. True. Um, this reminds me of the decorator crab. The decorator crab is popular in online videos about nature these days. Um, so maybe some of our viewers have already heard of it, but it's a, basically a, a medium-sized crab that lives on the ocean floor, and it has tiny little hooks all over its back, like little Velcro, and it breaks off seaweed and other sticks and things that grow in the water, little corals and polyps and things, and it puts them into the little hooks on its back. So it basically walks around with like a whole vegetation display on its back um and like it's the thing in, in moana i'm gonna have to admit that my right ant brain does not remember moana that well oh there's a big crab that collects things on his back no shiny then that's exactly what it is cool. but in the case of the decorator crab it's often used for camouflage okay cool that's fun i suppose we do that in a way that's how humans camouflage. We put stuff on ourselves. <laughs> yes, that's true. Like ghillie suits or car keys. Like mm-hmm. car key, the clothes, not keys for your car. That is a that's a bizarre Britishism. Wouldn't have said it that way. What would you? What? Which bit? <laughs> <laughs> car keys. Uh, we um we go for the more nasally khakis. Okay. So when you need to drive your car, you get yeah. Yeah, well, you pack your car and have it yard. <laughs> Sorry for any of my Bostonian listeners out there. Um, yeah, that's fun. Cool. Thanks, Nick. So, uh, one thing I found, um, I suppose when you think of camouflage, uh, an animal that you might classically think of is a chameleon. Camouflage. Mm. But... Did you guys know that the color, dramatic color changes it uses aren't actually for camouflage? Hmm. What's it for? So generally the displays are either um, to attract mates or to defend territories, you know, to um, like, you know, compete with other males or compete for territory, stuff like that. Um, okay. They can, they can adjust their coloration a little bit to um, make themselves lighter or darker, depending um, on the light. But generally, their um, color change isn't for blending into their background. Oh. Yeah, so they're generally well um, camouflaged anyway, because they're pretty pretty good at matching their background in their normal color. Yeah. I, I feel like children's TV has lied to me again. Yes. But, um, yeah, and they use um, chromatophores, which are pigment cells, so they can either contract or expand. Uh, so they have different layers of chromatophores, and basically changing the shape of those cells can change the color that you see, because um, it can either reflect um, different light or it can um, absorb different light. Well, that's fun, because I do know my, my chameleon fact is um, that uh, in Madagascar, uh, the local belief is that they're sort of quite a bad omen or that um, touching them can result in death. Uh, obviously not like everyone, but that's the local thing. So um, uh, 
back in the day when David Attenborough went there, rather than locking his car, he just used to put a chameleon on the steering wheel because he knew no one would get in it. Clever Dave. Um, also, isn't the smallest vertebrate a chameleon? Oh, potentially, yeah. There's a really tiny chameleon. I can't think of the, its name. I feel like it might be like a pygmy chameleon or something. Yeah, that's fun. I found something in Madagascar. I've never been, well, but I found something online um, <laughs> in Madagascar, which is the satanic leaf-tailed gecko. Oh, great name. Yeah, so this one, uh, if you look at it, it's an amazing looking creature, and it comes in different shades, obviously, a bit like trees do. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, it looks like a leaf. And if you give it a Google, um, it's tiny. Holy leaf, crap. Uh, yeah, if you give it a Google, the satanic leaf tail gecko, it's, um, yeah, it looks a lot like a leaf. This isn't what, real. They, yeah, they're really strange looking. Even their eyes are quite, yeah, unsettling. But they, uh, they hang off of trees and sort of dangle there, trying to look as best like a leaf they can. And also, like other geckos, um, famously can shed their tails, and their tail looks like a leaf, so they just drop the leaf behind them and run off. Huh. Wow, wow. these. Pictures are crazy, Nick. Yeah, this is yeah. very impressive. And do they do that to to hide from predators, or is it to like catch prey, or is it just like a mix of? I think it's a bit of both because they are insectivorous, aren't they? Yeah. But uh, I th- I assume it is to hide from prey because I know the the tail reaction is very much to get away from um, predators. I'm in awe. This is great. Um, viewers, listeners, <laughs> viewers, listeners out there, please do yourself the favor of looking at the satanic leaf-tailed gecko. Also, I'm trying to think of as many um, Disney film songs to drop in without you guys noticing as I can. <laughs> oh, no. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> Game on. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's fine. I just got to be prepared. So. Mm. Finding the thread of our conversation today is difficult because it seems to be hidden. <laughs> Let's move on. Um, Naomi, do you have any other cool camouflage, creepy creature stuff for us? Yes, I do. Um, so mine actually is about things that mimic in order to hide. Um, and I was afraid I would be covering myself from our previous mimicry Oh. Sorry, I had to, I had to do that. Uh, yeah, so it was about the mimic octopus. Have you guys seen any? This is another good one to Google, definitely. Um, so this octopus is able to make itself look like lots of different creatures um, in order to hide. So it, it seems to vary what it turns into in order to hide from different things. Um, so it can look like sea snakes. It does this by hiding its body in a burrow or a hole and then putting out two arms. Um, it can change like the stripes, and then it, you know, it shakes its legs to look like a snake. Uh, it can look like a lionfish, a jellyfish, a shrimp, um, and a few other things. A shrimp. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Why of that long list of animals were you only impressed by the shrimp? Well, <laughs> think about it. An octopus is like this big, 
and a shrimp is like this big. I'm not making the actual gestures because it doesn't matter because no one can see me in the end anyway. But you know what I mean. Yes. <laughs> but it does it through a combination of color change um, and also it's able to change its te- texture um, and able to change its body as well. Okay, so it can like paint with all the colors of the wind. Mm, it can. Uh... This is going to get all fast here, isn't it? <laughs> Should I just let it go? No, that's really yeah, cool. I uh, also like, I saw camouflage is an interesting one because, yeah, cuttlefish are sort of very famous for their displays. Um, but they will often do them to sort of attract attention, which is sort of the opposite. Uh, the only thing I can find was, oh, I wasn't sure if this was camouflage, but where the male cuttlefish pretend to be women. Oh, yes, yeah. you seen this? One. Yeah, there's the big muscular ones uh, who, like, get their harem of cuttlefish underneath them. And the little cuttlefish can't compete with them by fighting. So what they do is they hide two of their legs and they um, they display as if they're a woman. And the big burly male one puts them underneath um, with his harem of cuttlefish women. And then the little cuttlefish um, does his sneaky business underneath and then swims away. Huh. Ooh. Hmm. Strategy to bring to the clubs once they reopen. <laughs> no, no, no. I'll put that in a different notebook. <laughs> How does an octopus look like a shrimp? Oh, yeah. Basically, the way it looks like a shrimp is it like sticks its body into the um, sand, and it just looks like the head of a shrimp. Oh, cute. Hmm. Oh, so it turns out that the mimic octopus is incredibly small. Which is not what I was expecting. But I've just now seen a video with a diver, a human diver, and the octopus, and it's like the size of someone's hand. Ah, okay, cool. Okay, so this makes, a shrimp makes a lot more sense now. Maybe they've just got massive hands. Is that a Disney song? Maybe they've got massive <laughs> hands. It's not a Disney song, amazingly. <laughs> 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 Um. You never know. <laughs> so, uh, so we were talking about how sunny it is, right? Yeah. So this might pose problems for camouflage, because oh. you know how it looks in the winter isn't how the rest of the world looks in um in summer, is it? So how do you hide across all seasons? Tricksy, right? Mm. So uh, there are certain animals which uh, change strategy depending on the weather. So um, the Arctic fox has something called seasonal camouflage. Um, where when you think of an Arctic fox, what color would you say it was? Probably white. Yeah. yeah. So white in the winter is very useful because it lives in a snowy area. But the thing is, in the summer is when the most food is about. And if you're white in the summer, you're going to stick out and not be able to hunt. So they actually turn a different colour in the summer. They become a sort of grey colour, sort of match the rocks they'll be on. Cool. Uh, They're not the only animal to do this. There are other ones, like the stoat does it as well. So the stoat will turn white in winter and is sort of a brown and white in in summer. It's like that old saying, fickle and changeable as the stoat. Mm. Is that an old saying? Definitely, surely. (laughs) 
But yes, yeah, season to season, they change like back and forth. Uh, like, so yeah, from year to year, they'll go to white to sort of a gray and back to white. It's sort of like a circle of life sort of thing. That made me think, do you guys know what color polar bear fur is? Yes. Oh. Trick yeah. question. Polar bears don't exist. <laughs> yes. <laughs> do, you, do you guys know? See-through. Yes, exactly. And they have black skin underneath. And then the transparent fur reflects the light. Um... I have something related to our overarching topic um, that I would like to share with you guys. I pulled it out from the archives for this episode. Um, It's a short passage from a book by Jonathan Kingdon, who's a researcher in African mammals. Um, And it's it's directly on camouflage, but it sort of touches on two of my interests, which are science and art combined and how they work together. But... um, I think if you guys don't mind me reading it, I'll read it to you guys. Yeah, go for it. Cool. To survive, every visual predator, whether cat, hawk, or tigerfish, must repeatedly see through the disguises used by their prey. Because visual predators often select the most easily seen individuals of their prey, the evolutionary explanation for progressively better and better camouflage in prey animals lies in processions of survivors and offspring of survivors that were somewhat less easily seen and caught. The visual acuity of predators has therefore been a primary agency in their prey's external appearances. Thus, concealing coloration is as much a manifestation of predator behavior as it is that of the prey. Furthermore, we're almost done, because every prey animal lives within the setting where it will be seen or escape being seen, its appearance will have been selected in direct relationship to some specifics of that setting. We call the outcome camouflage, but it is actually a striking manifestation of appearances being translated into another medium. In effect, predator selection draws or paints some aspect of the landscape onto the bodies of surviving prey animals. Hair, feathers, or chitin become the medium for miniature landscape paintings. Wow, that was really beautiful. I like that. I like his writing a lot, but that the idea that like, the process of selection, predator selection on prey animals that are trying to hide, painting the landscape onto their bodies over many generations is yeah. like, I've never thought about evolution that way. Yeah, right. but like that effectively, like that is what it is. That's so cool. Yeah. That is really, that's really cool. Um, one thing that made me think of was um, we've been talking about animals a lot. Um, but when we think of the landscape, you don't often think of animals as the landscape when you think of a landscape you tend to include plants though don't you mm-hmm. mm. which is interesting and you especially don't think of plants camouflaging themselves mm-hmm. plants are usually very obviously seen they're bright green they're the bright green thing in our world and they're everywhere and you can see them everywhere um, and they need to be green right because that's how they photosynthesize using their green uh, chlorophyll so how could they possibly camouflage uh, and it wasn't until about 2018 that they found out that plants do camouflage quite well, um, and almost in every similar way as animals do. Um, and we're so used to them, in fact, doing the opposite, where they build structures to attract animals, like flowers, um, where they're being bright so they can be seen. 
But there are there is one that's uh, quite famous. It plant grows in China, and this was a study by the University of Exeter and the Kunming uh, Institute of Botany in China. So it was uh, the Corydalis hemidicentra, and they found this would grow in rocks. But amazingly, these plants, if they were found in a red rock, they would be red. And if they were found in sort of a dark grey rock, they would be dark grey. Or a light grey rock, the leaves would be light grey. Mm. So it appears these plants can grow um, sort of a different uh, mixture of pig, uh, pigments within their uh, within their sort of um, structures. Uh, and they can grow in different colours in the best way to camouflage. That is so cool. But similar to animals where it's sort of like it's quite an expensive thing to do to sort of build elaborate structures. Uh, the expense in the plants is they can't photosynthesize efficiently as plants that just choose to be, choose, but uh, yeah, are green. Because uh, the more green they are, the more energy they can get from the sun. Mm. And mm. also, uh, they, I'm not sure they are succulents. I looked at a picture of them, but they look quite succulenty, so they look like a little stone. Cool. Camouflaging stone plants. What will they come up with next? <laughs> awesome. I'm, we're learning a lot today. Well, I'm learning a lot today. <laughs> you guys already knew this. Yeah. It's a whole new world for you. <sighs> that was a good one. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> but as you know, it's all part of your world, so. Okay. Um, Naomi, do you have anything else you want to bring to the table on camouflage today? Yeah, I have I have one other thing. Um, and it's oh, about well, be the, our guest, be our guest. It's about the peppered moth. Um, so this is often used as an example of evolution and like pressures of natural selection at work. Um, so there's two color morphs of the peppered moth. There's one very dark one, uh, which is almost black or very dark gray. And then there's the um, light one, which is sort of uh, white and gray speckled. And it would blend quite well with the... Um, like a birch bark or that kind of white bark. Um, but during the Industrial Revolution, when there was a lot of smog and soot, um, the darker form uh, became a lot more prevalent. Um, and then when all that reduced after the Industrial Revolution, the lighter form came back, um, and it shows the pressures of natural selection at work. Cool. That's really cool. Yeah. And also how easy it is for us to unexpectedly change the world around us. Yes, yeah. That too. Do you want to know um, something irrelevant but fun? Yes. Of course. What else so, is this podcast? So you were thinking about black and uh, white. So do you guys know why penguins are just like great white sharks? Counter shading? Counter shading? Yeah. So, oh, cool. what does that mean? Um, so basically, the darker color is on the top, um, and the lighter color is on the bottom. So it's to hide your own shadow. Effect. Yeah. So if they're being seen horizontally, uh, they don't look like one block color, so they wouldn't stick out in the sea when they're hunting. Because um, you don't think of penguins being camouflaged because they're black things in Antarctica, <laughs> which <laughs> yeah is a predominantly white continent. Um, in every sense, but uh, <laughs> uh, no, it's uh, yeah, they um, they sort of stick out against the snowy background. But when they're hunting, it's quite useful to be dark on your back 
because uh, that would be your top, and light on your bottom, very similar to a great white shark. Because anything looking down, it is darker uh, below, so with a dark back, you blend in. And anything looking up, it's lighter uh, above, so you have a light stomach, uh, you'll blend in as well. So it's an evolutionary path that both um, penguins and great white sharks took to camouflage. Cool. But you probably wouldn't say that they look alike. I wouldn't say that, no. No. Probably not. Or else you get terrified at London Zoo. <laughs> and, but that also reminded me of um, another method of camouflage that isn't necessarily blending into your background. Um, disruptive coloration. Um, so this is something that, say, um, zebras use. Um, and so it doesn't work if it's a zebra on its own. But zebras aren't usually because they live in a herd. Uh, but basically they're stripes. It's really hard to pick out one single zebra because um, their color and the pattern makes it so it's hard to kind of see the outline of the animal. Um, so it breaks up its individual outline. And then especially in a group, it's really hard to see individuals. Um, and also, um, even though they're black and white, um, it doesn't matter because their main predator species, lion, is colorblind. So it still helps them blend in. Nick, do you have any other um, Disney song titles for us? Sorry, uh, I mean anything about camouflage for us? Well, I was thinking on like how far I'll go with um, this sort of Disney song theme. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess yeah, I'll give up. So you're welcome. Um, <laughs> I feel like even if you're colorblind, the contrast between zebra stripes is so intense that it yeah. doesn't matter. Like, even if everything around is like a sort of dull gray, it's like, bam! Mm. True. I heard then it I was a bit like uh, the murmurations of swallows and um, the uh, the schooling of fish, that it's like when they're running next to each other rather than... Mm. Um, rather than sticking out. But then I suppose, yeah, they wouldn't stick out so much if they weren't colour contrast, would they? I don't know. Yeah. I think they're one that is like a little bit trickier, that they're, like, there's a few different options why. I don't have a definite answer by it, but yeah. But you think of tigers, they're quite stripy, and they're really well camouflaged to mm-hmm. us when we couldn't see a tiger very easily. So I imagine maybe a lion's a bit like that with a zebra, if it can't have those distinction of colours. Yeah, plus, plus I think as well it doesn't necessarily matter that it, it can't, like it, it would be okay that it sees a herd of zebra, but you wouldn't want to see one individual zebra because then that would be vulnerable if you like pick one out or like pick out a small one. But if it's just being a mass, it's hard to pick out an individual. There's a type of camouflage used in both World War One and World War Two called dazzle camouflage. Um, that basically does what a zebra stripes do, which is like clashing black and white together. Um, that makes it hard to see the outline. But I think for that, it's like, it also makes it difficult for depth perception to, for a, like a ship's sonar, a submarine sonar to figure out how far away the ship is, um, to properly launch a torpedo. So maybe there's something to do with like when a lion is stalking, they misjudge the depth and maybe like show themselves too soon or something. Cool. Yeah. And to this day, a lion has never sunk a ship. 
So mm-hmm. that, I, I, I want to believe you, but I also don't, because I feel like that would make a good story. Yeah. <laughs> Though and we do know that clams sink ships mm-hmm. and loose lips. <laughs> Did you guys have that in, in, in the UK? Loose lips sink ships. Oh, we've got plenty of loose lips, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, we had we. Uh, yeah, we had uh, loose lips. Loose. Li- yeah, we had loose lips since yes, as well. <laughs> cool. I'm glad that wasn't just an American thing. Yeah, it's it's very famous. It's like loose lips and torpedoes, but not lions will sink a ship. That's and some clams, but not all of them. Only when they're in a symbiosis. <laughs> That's why uh, our most famous poster was just keep calm and carry on. The the rest were just very long and detailed. Yeah. <laughs> A long list of things that might sink a ship. <laughs> Which is important to know, but it's not so catchy. Um, so I have one final piece um, of camouflage. Um, and a lot of what I was looking up was like visual camouflage. But then I was thinking, are there like other kinds of camouflage? Um, so I found olfactory camouflage, um, mm. which is co- covering up your smell. Um, because a lot of predators um, would use that as a way to find prey. Um, so it would make sense. So one example is the California ground squirrel. Um, and what they do is they chew up and spit out rattlesnake skin, and then they create a paste that they put on their own tail so that they smell like rattlesnakes. Um, so then rattlesnakes, <laughs> which use a mixture of like uh, heat detection and scent, get kind of confused, so they don't want to attack this ground squirrel. What? I think it's another... Um, yeah, I think it's another venomous snake. It's not worth it. That is so cool. Yeah. Um, also, puff adders are able to um, camouflage their scent. They can basically not smell at all. And even dogs are fooled by puff adders, which is pretty impressive because they have a very good sense of smell. Cool. So they just yeah. hide to the fact they smell? Yeah. They, I think they can like effectively reduce their like odor. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah. Mm. Well, yeah. Yeah, and you... that was pretty much all I had on olfactory camouflage. There we do that as well. Camouflage. I often try and cover my smell. <laughs> we were talking earlier about snow creatures, um, and the Arctic hare is another one that has the dimorphic coloring where they change seasonal camouflage. Um, and apparently also what they do in the winter when they're running around on top of the snow, when they want to stop and eat somewhere, they'll stop a, a few feet away so that their tracks aren't near what they're trying to eat. And then they'll leap up into the air and jump like off their trail towards the food, land by the food, and then munch the food there so their tracks aren't connected to where they're sitting. Wow, so, that's pretty cool. Not so much camouflage, but like a cool evasive behavior to hide their they're hiding their tracks and scent. Yeah. That is fun. Yeah. Cool. Well, I think that brings us to the end of our conversation today about camouflage, unless you guys have anything hiding up your sleeves. No, I think we really did go the distance there. That was... Uh, yeah. I'm just, just assuming that these are Disney songs, because these are too niche for me. They are. Um, <laughs> but we've heard some great stories today about some unbelievable animals. But tune in next week, because we're going to hear more stories about unbelievable animals when we talk about myths. Um, so I'm looking forward to next week's episode. Thank you guys for joining us and listening to get again this week. It should be out next week in normal schedule. 
that's goodbye from Nick. Goodbye. Goodbye from Naomi. Goodbye. And goodbye from me. Goodbye. learn something new even about not things not the things that we're supposed to be talking about <laughs> <laughs>